Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. might sound a little bit strange, but today I want to begin at the end. Uh, That is considering the very end of our worship service. Uh, Last week we got really close to that. Uh, We talked about the benediction. And we looked in the Old Testament book of Numbers and where it declares in the blessing of God and those whose heart is right with him. And and today, then we go to the very end. Often at the end of our worship service, uh, we sing together this brief song we call the doxology. And though we call it that, uh, it's actually one among many doxologies. So before we look in Scripture at another doxology, one that's in the Psalms, uh, let me just explain a little bit. What is a doxology anyway? Uh, That that word actually comes from two Greek words, doxa, which means glory, and word or or saying um, is the word logos, and so doxology. Uh, Together, that means then saying or speaking glory or praising. And and often uh, we do that uh, by singing it. Uh, And so back to that doxology that we often sing at the end of a service, uh, when we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow, we're we're actually singing some lyrics that were written uh, almost 350 years ago and a melody composed over 450 years ago, and we're singing a, a hymn in the words of that then um, that hundreds of, and thousands of people, believers all over the world, have sung for, for years. Uh, the words of that oxology recognize that there is one God who is the ultimate source and of all of the blessings that humans receive. And the words then declare that all creatures here below, as, as well as all of the heavenly host, ought to then join in declaring praise to this God who is three in one, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I'm going to refer back to that doxology later, but let me uh, just explain that um, it's truly one among many doxologies, which are really then summary statements uh, of praise to the triune God. And scripture's actually loaded with such statements. Uh, you might have noticed um, many of the psalms, for instance, uh, include, including, for instance, our call to worship today um, from Psalm 117. Start out with statements uh, of praise to God, uh, declaring then descriptions of some of his attributes. And the New Testament includes several such expressions of praise as well. And, and you maybe were wondering, why did we read the Christmas story today? Well, it's because there's a doxology in that there. includes the words of that anthem that the, the angel choir sung, um, announcing the Savior's birth, and it includes those words, and glory to God in the highest. The end of the Lord's Prayer, uh, as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, includes these words of doxology. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The epistle reading from Ephesians today ended with those words of doxology, to him be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. We go even to the very end of the book of Revelation then, for instance. Chapter 5 there, 
describes a scene, you know, a throne room scene where there are four creatures and 12 elders and, and myriads of angels gathered around the throne of God in heaven and, and they say a doxology. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And it goes on to tell us in every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and, and in the sea and all that is in them joins in saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. When we end our worship service with a doxology, then we are joining in declaring a, a final statement that there is only one who deserves praise and glory, and that's Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So with that background, let's look in Psalm 113 today. Uh, you might notice in your Bibles uh, a, a title um, one title that I've seen on this one is, Who is Like the Lord Our God? I invite you to stand in reverence to God's word as we read today. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks, down, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, as we meditate on this psalm and, and we consider um, who you are, that you are worthy of all praise um, come from each of our lips. Uh, Lord, may that come from our hearts as well. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so just walking through this short psalm here today then, first of all, who ought to praise and give glory to the Lord? It says all servants of the Lord, all, all living creatures who serve him in heaven and on earth. Um, and you know, as we think about this earth, uh, there are bosses and lords and dictators, and, and some of them are tyrants and, and are hated by those that are required to serve them. But all who truly know the Lord God serve him willingly, and they can't help but praise him as they recognize who he is. And as we sing then that, that most familiar doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow, it says praise him who? All creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Uh, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Similarly here in verse 1, praise the Lord. Praise those servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. So what does it mean to praise his name? Well, our name identifies who we are, doesn't it? It sets us apart from other people. For instance, uh, my name is Lloyd. And until recently, that set me apart from anybody else in this congregation. Lately, we've been having another Lloyd here. And so now you have to elaborate to explain which one you're talking about. Um, so you might do that by using our last name, for instance, or by explaining some characteristic concerning one of us that you're referring to. Uh, you might explain me by my age, or by how much hair I have, or, or by my family, or my profession, or something like that. Well, 
when you refer to God. There, there's an immediate way you might say to elaborate as well, since there are people who think that there are actually many gods. And they don't grasp what the true God is really like. And so we will often refer to God, for instance, maybe we'll say almighty creator of the universe or something. I find it interesting, uh, there's one place in the book of Exodus where God is interacting with Moses up there on Mount Sinai. And before he gives the commandments for the second time, he's explaining his name. If you look at Exodus 34, it has this. The Lord descended in the cloud, and he stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. And then the Lord passed by him in front of him and proclaimed just who he is. And here's what he said about himself. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, and who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. All of that is wrapping up God and who he is, his name. And we who then claim a connection with the one true God and do things in his name are to be like him so that we honor his name. And when we speak of him, it ought to be then in praising his name. How long ought he to be praised? Verse 2, blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. We, we can't do anything about the past, but from beginning right here today, his name ought to be praised forever, from now and into eternity. How, how far ought that praise to extend? You look at verse 3, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And as we think of it, that in time, God's name ought to be praised from the very beginning then of each day until its end, and he deserves praise even into the night as well. However, in location, his name ought to be praised all across the earth from east to the far west. And when you understand that the earth is actually like a globe, that, that means then the sun is always rising and setting someplace as the earth revolves around its axis, and so there is no end then to either east or west. His name ought to be praised infinitely. Why ought he to be praised? As you look on in this psalm here, it tells us it's, it's because of who he is and because of what he does. Who is he? he? It tells us in verse 4, he is one who is above all. He's higher, and not just in location, but also in rank. There's no getting above him to his boss. He's at the top. He's over all governors and presidents and kings and dictators of the world. He rules over all of their jurisdictions and every one of their citizens or subjects. Verse 4, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. And so he's over all of the angelic host as well, there is no earthly or heavenly ruler above him. Verse 5 goes on to tell us that there is no one like him. His knowledge and his wisdom is beyond any of our comprehension and beyond the smartest or wisest human ever to live on the earth. We were just talking about this yesterday at our men's breakfast as we've been walking through the Old Testament book of Job and we've finally gotten to that point then where after all these uh, conversations back and forth with Job and his friends and others, then uh, we have God's response to Job. 
And, and he asks Job some rather pointed questions here. And, and he says in, in chapter 38, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if, if you have understanding. Who, who set its measurements, since you know? Or, or who stretched a line on it? Or, or what were its, it, it, uh, on what were its bases sunk? Or, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. And we were talking about this yesterday. It's, it's just mind-boggling for us. All the things that God knows. And so, of course, Job's answer to those questions and, and our answer should be, no, I don't know any of those things. So here then, the writer of Psalm 113 says, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high and who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? If you picture a king seated on a throne, looking down on his lowly subjects, that barely begins to explain God's position over us. He's king over the whole universe. He looks down from a vantage point above it all. There, there's not even a star or a distant galaxy that's beyond him. He's above all of that too, and above all leaders and rulers of any kind. And, and that's why this next point then is so interesting to me. It, it is amazing to think about that though he is above all of those things, yet he is not aloof from the lowliest of us. Whereas there are many earthly political leaders who think of themselves as kind of an elite class and, and they can't or they don't care to relate to the common people. Some of them want the common people, for instance, give up our internal combustion engines while they continue to fly all, of, all over the globe in their private jets. Some of them are billionaires with agendas to reduce the world's population and to get rid of the lower class one way or another. How different the Lord God is from them. This king, who is above it all, cares about the lowliest of his subjects. And as you look on in this psalm, then I, I see two examples that he wants to explain to us here. One of them, he says, the, the poor and the needy he raises to sit with princes. The poor and the needy raised to sit with princes. Verse 7, he raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and with the princes of his people. So let me explain some things concerning those two verses. First of all, if you just take them at surface value, we, we would conclude then, and, and rightly so, God cares for the poor, for those with very little earthly wealth, those who are sitting in the dirt, the, the homeless, those living in the slums. God cares for them. That is true. And if God cares for them, then we who are God's servants should care for them too. And we can be God's hands and feet, so to speak, on earth, helping those who have almost nothing and those who have reached the bottom and helping them to receive then material essentials for life. And all of that is true. But there's more here than that. God wants to do more than that for them. And the psalmist is saying that not only do the poor and the needy get lifted by God from the dust and the ash heap to a slightly better economic status, but they get seated next to royalty. 
Uh, and I think this can best be understood in light of something I see in the New Testament. If you uh, want to look at Ephesians chapter 2, here's what it tells us. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions. Now, dead, that, that's in the dust or the ash heaps spiritually. Yet he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And, and he, and here's this word now, he raised us up with him. That's the same wording we have in Psalm 113. Raised up there. And he seated us with him. Where? It goes on to say in Ephesians, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, we, the, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What the New Testament reveals to us, that this God, this God who cares about the lowliest on earth and lifts them to better status, totally transforms hearts and lives for now and for eternity. Those in the dirt, so to speak, those who are stuck in sin and its consequences are lifted out of it and they are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That is, they are seated with Jesus in the spiritual realm and they become then adopted sons and daughters of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you might look at him as like the, the prince sin. And, and the lowliest are given status that brings them to eat at his table. And along with that then, through Jesus, they are given power to overcome the things that kept them trapped in the dirt before. And ultimately, of course, they then have, uh, they, they who had no earthly status um, get to reign with Christ in eternity. We can look around and we can see examples of this where we have seen God raise people out of the, out of the low. And, and I found an interesting example here as I was looking back on something in history that I, I knew of. Um, there is a, a group of young men, motley crew kind of uh, in this town who uh, were known for causing some trouble and and, and uh, they got caught throwing eggs at the Spanish teacher's home in, in Wheatland, Iowa, years ago. You know what their punishment was? They were given a choice. Either they could do 20 hours of community service, or they could have, go to uh, five one-hour Bible study sessions with a local youth worker. They chose what they thought was the lesser of the two evils, five hours of Bible study. That first night's topic was the Ten Commandments. And they got so into a discussion that the study went way past the hour. And it did for the next four weeks as well. And when the five weeks were up, the group voted to continue the studies. And as the year went on, the, the, the study group doubled in size. The leader of that was a young man that I'd had the privilege of teaching confirmation instruction back when I was on seminary internship. And he summed up this group of guys with this. He said, they taught me that I should never, ever doubt the power of God and his word. Well, that's what Psalm 113 is telling us here. This God raises people from the dirt and he gives them new life here and now and eternal life with his son in heaven someday. There's one more thing I see in this psalm here before we wrap it up. And that is this, that the barren and the alone he gives a family. You look at verse 9 there, and it says, He gives the barren woman a home, 
making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. You know, in, in Old Testament society, a, a huge emphasis was placed on having children. And so unmarried women, or, or even married women who were not able to have children, were some of the loneliest of people around. And we're told of examples in Scripture, like Sarah and Hannah, for instance, who, who struggled, wanting so much to have children. And then finally, after years of praying for such, God granted them their desire, and Hannah gave birth to Samuel. And miraculously, Sarah gave birth at age 90 to Isaac. That's the God of the Bible. He's able to do amazing things, and he does that for those that he cares for, and he hears the prayers of his people, even the loneliest, and those feeling all alone. And if, and if that's still true, then that means if, if you're one who is feeling very alone in your life today, God wants to give you a family. And I believe he does that by what's taking place right here as he brings us into the family of God and the church. Psalm 68 describes God as a father to the fatherless and a judge for the widows. And it says God makes a home for the lonely. In 1 John chapter 3, the apostle John describes the blessing of being adopted into God's family and it says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called as children, children of God, and such we are. Barren and alone in Jesus Christ are brought into the family of God. The, the God of the Bible, Almighty God, creator of the universe, deserves our praise today and every day. Why? Well, because he's above all things. There, there's no one like him in wisdom and power and might, and yet he is not aloof from the loneliest and the lowliest on earth. The poor and the needy he raises to sit with princes. The, the rebellious sinner he forgives and welcomes to sit with Jesus, his son, positionally on earth and ultimately in eternal glory. And the barren and alone he gives a family, the family of God. And so we conclude by saying praise him. All glory and praise belongs to him. As we think back to then that familiar doxology that we sing sometimes at the end of the service, where does that come from? So a guy named Thomas Ken wrote those plain and profound words uh, back in the late 1600s. He, he wrote a hymn um, for his students in the college he was a part of um, so that they would sing that as they arose in the morning. And then he wrote another one for them to sing at bedtime each evening. And then he wrote a third hymn for them to sing at midnight if they were still up. Um, and, and each of those three hymns, and two of them are in our hymnals, um, but each of those three hymns end with the, the, the last verse of the hymn being this doxological stanza. The words that we sing in the doxology today. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The Methodist hymnal has that doxology on page, or on it, its hymn number 606. And students at Goshen College, a Methodist college, are, are known to stand and sing that hymn at ball games when there's six minutes and six seconds left on the clock if they're winning the game. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, I guess must include even winning games. However, God deserves our praise all of the time, even when we're not winning.
And so when we sing the doxology at the end of the worship service, it's intended that the whole congregation would join in singing this as a triumphant winding down or winding up of the whole act of worship of what we've been here for. And as one author says, it is a decisive, overwhelming finish to which no reply is possible. Let's pray. Lord God, we stand in awe of who you are. You are above us all, above everything we know of in this universe and in all galaxies beyond. And yet, you care for us. We thank you for that, Lord. And thank you that your word reveals that to us. And thank you, Lord, that though we know you to be holy and awesome and a judge, and we have transgressed your, your commandments and we have gone against your plans, yet you are so merciful that, that you care for us and you provide a way of forgiveness of sin and eternal life and you lift us out of the dust and the ash heap and seat us with your son Jesus. That's amazing. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, you know the things that we go through in lives uh, here on this earth and, and that uh, many feel so alone. But thank you that you have brought us into your family. And Lord, I pray that if there be somebody here today who uh, this is new to, have not understood this before, Lord, that, that even today they would recognize that you care for them, that, uh, that you offer them forgiveness of sin and eternal life with Jesus. And, and that you draw them into this, the family of God. We thank you for that. Amen.